A bit lit, celebrating research and creativity of all kinds. Eric, hello, how are you? Good, how are you doing, Andy? I'm really good, thank you. And I'm very excited to be celebrating your new book, uh, Meter and Modernity in English Verse, 15, uh, 1350 to 1650. I'm looking forward to talking through um, the words and the numbers in that title. But congratulations to you on the new book. Um, we start our films by asking contributors to introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about their work. So would you mind doing that and particularly um, telling us about the new book? Sure, and thanks for having me. Uh, so I'm Eric Weiscott. I am Associate Professor of English at Boston College, um, where I have taught now for seven years. And um, my uh, work has generally been about English poetry and its forms and um, uh, it, it has many different forms, uh, which is part of what this book is about. And um, I've often thought about poetry in relationship to um, temporality and the categories that we use to know the past. And mm -hmm. in English literature, those categories are often uh, period categories like Renaissance, medieval, uh, Tudor, um, categories that, that lift out a tranche of time according to an idea of that time being self-similar. Um, so I've been interested in, in periodization, which is the study of those tranches of time. Great. And this book is proposing new ways of um, thinking about those tranches of time using contemporary forms of poetry, writing and conceptualization to encourage us and our colleagues to uh, undo some of the ways in which we sort of clamp down on time in these kind of if he's retrospective later impositions mm -hmm. uh, onto the past. Um, I'm trying to think of a, a, a small question to ask in relation to that, but <laughs> these all feel like big questions. Um, maybe can we start then with the, the date range uh, in your book, 1350 mm -hmm. to 1650, and I, I guess you would put a, a C, a circa in front of those dates. You end the book um, by saying you don't have any great strong commitment to 1650, although you give some great reasons as to why we should be thinking about <laughs> um, Yeah, what does, it mean, what does it mean to work across that particular swathe of time? That's the question right. I'm going to ask you with apologies. <laughs> no, no, I, um, I, I remember when I, my, my first book was about uh, the alliterative tradition uh, from the beginnings through 1550, and that, that was about 900 years. And when I went to one of my advisors and pitched that as a dissertation, she said, oh, wow, so it's going to be big. Um, <laughs> I guess I think big in that way. Maybe that means I also think shallowly or something, but I, my <laughs> questions tend to, I, the questions I start with tend to be big questions. Mm. Um, 1350 to 1650 is obviously a date range of convenience. I'm, I'm very interested in old English literature and, and regret that just the scope of this book didn't let me fit it quite in the way that it did for my first book. Um, and that's that, that's actually the subject of my first book, the, the hiving off of Middle English from Old English, which I'm in general against, even though I'm sort of reinforcing it in this book uh, for convenience sake. But um, 1350 to 1650 is 300 years, and um, I'm talking about three metrical traditions. Um, so <laughs> if you think about it, it's like 900 tra tradition years, and um, that's about the size of my first book. So that's part of what it was. It's just biting off a chunk of, of literary time that seemed like about the same morsel as I uh, dealt with for my first book. Um, more particularly, uh, I wanted to have room to talk about um, 
uh, Chaucer and and William Langland. Um, so I wanted to start early enough to to incorporate their careers. But on the other hand, um, the first uh, part of the book so that it has three parts. The first part is um, not about Chaucer or Langland per se. It's about the the genre of political prophecy, a strange, um, enticing, now completely defunct mode of um, writing that isn't only poetic but uh, but includes a lot of poetry. And that tradition comes to a fairly um, clear end in the middle of the 17th century. So that set the, the later boundary. I, I felt like it would be not appropriate for that tradition to stop any sooner than 1650. Mm. Um, so that's, that's really where the 300-year the span came from, wanting to, on the one hand, include Chaucer and Langland and other 14th century uh, poetry that uh, appeals to me, and then on the other hand, do justice to this uh, very long-lived tradition of, of political writing that changed into something else around 1650. So there's kind of two different pulls happening there between, um, I mean, your book couldn't be, couldn't be less um, canonical in its assumptions, but nevertheless, there's a pull between two big names, as it were, on the one hand, mm -hmm. and then on the mm -hmm. other, a much more anonymous and collaborative and remediated um, a tradition of prophetic and political writing, which we might come right. back to. Um, and the, the idea that 300 years times three metrical traditions <laughs> equals 900 years, um, that's a brilliant encapsulation of the way your, your book constantly makes us revisit and rethink uh, units of time that we feel we, 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 we thought we knew well. Um, <laughs> Eric, is it okay just um, to outline briefly those three metrical traditions then in the book, just so we have some purchase on them for the rest of the conversation? Perfect. Yeah. Um, so the, I'll, I'll go in historical order, which is how I go in the book as well, um, i.e. not chronological order. Uh, they overlap. Mm. So the, the oldest tradition is, is alliterative poetry, the subject of my first book. This is the oldest tradition of writing poetry in English. Um, it was the only way of writing poetry in English up through about the 12th century. Uh, it's the form of Beowulf and other old English poetry. And it remains the form of some English poetry all the way to the 16th century. Um, uh, it's the form of Piers Plowman uh, by William Langland. It's the form of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and uh, a variety of other Middle English or late medieval English poems. Mm. Um, and it is the most of the three that I'm talking about in this book, it's the most different from contemporary uh, forms of poetry. It is not organized according to a count of syllables. It's not even organized according to a count of stresses. Instead, it has a series of um, different rules that interact uh, independently. And um, so its, it's, its forms are, um, must, be, must be learned through historical study and, and uh, can't be like sung to a tune, if you like. Um, the second tradition I'm talking about is one that uh, of the three gets by far the least attention. So I was very excited to um, really attend to it carefully. And that's uh, tetrameter or iambic tetrameter, um, which is a, a Greek derived name for an English meter uh, that um, has uh, a patterning of syllables such that a line of poetry is generally eight syllables or their equivalent and um, alternates between unstressed and stressed positions uh, or generally syllables. Um, uh, and then more familiar to, to the audience probably is iambic pentameter, um, which is the same as tetrameter, but uh, an extra alternation. So it's 10 syllables alternating unstressed and stressed. And these two meters together, tetrameter and pentameter, 
um, are often referred to as accentual syllabic, which is supposed to indicate that both the number of syllables and the number of uh, accents or, or stressed positions matters. In other words, you can't just have any 10 syllables. That's not necessarily a pentameter. And you can't just have any five uh, stress line. That isn't necessarily a pentameter either. Um, so unlike alliterative poetry, which is not accentual syllabic, um, tetrameter and pentameter uh, count syllables and count positions. And um, tetrameter gets going around the 12th century and, and continues up uh, through the rest of the period I'm interested in. Uh, pentameter around the 15th century becomes the um, standard form of English poetry. Uh, and that's part of the story I'm telling in this mm -hmm. book. Um, I'm retelling that story that we think we know. Uh, but it, it gets going earlier in the, in the late 14th century and, and actually is invented by Geoffrey Chaucer. So that's um, an unusual case where we can pinpoint the exact person who introduced uh, a form of English poetry. So that gives us a decade and it gives us a city or a purview in which mm -hmm. it's being uh, created. And I guess one of the great joys of your book is the way it's um, uh, doing exquisite uh, metrical and analytical work, but at the same time insisting on us thinking about the, um, the political, the geopolitical, uh, the social implications of particular verse choices. Um, I wonder if you could walk us through um, some of those. So... Um, one of the issues facing anyone watching this film is that all three of those forms now feel old. <laughs> and your book is so good at getting us to think about the almost real, uh, real time dis compositional mm -hmm. decisions and auditory or reading experiences of coming across these poems in the periods in which they're being produced and what the, um, the, the form, the choices of, of verse form do to those compositional and receptive processes, what they do to a writer, what they do to a, a reader uh, or a listener. Do you mind giving us some examples of where that, um, those questions of form and um, um, the political or social import of that form, where they intersect? Sure. Yeah, that's, um, that's really, thank you for that summary of uh, the, the, general, the general goal of the book uh, is, is like to get behind, somehow get behind, um, uh, get around the retrospective reading of form, um, which is hard because it's the 21st century and our reading of these forms is retrospective. But um, by, by trying to remain conscious of the purposes for which, let's say, 17th, 18th, 19th, and 20th century readers um, looked at these forms and uh, sort of acknowledging and then neutralizing those purposes, those contemporary purposes, I'm, I, I am trying to reconstruct some version of a of a, um, of a then contemporary, of a 14th, 15th or 16th century contemporary feeling uh, experience of form. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it is, I think, often very different from what is then later remembered. And so here's an example from the second part of my book. Um, I noticed as I read through um, uh, 16th and early 17th century treatises on English poetics that um, a poem near and dear to my heart, William Langland's Piers Plowman, was repeatedly described as being in blank verse. Um, now, today, blank verse is an accepted technical term that refers to iambic pentameter when it does not rhyme, uh, as in most of Shakespeare's plays. Um, so it's, a, it's in the 16th and 17th centuries, it's a dramatic form, or it's also a form for epic, as in Milton's Paradise Lost. Um, however, uh, 
somehow not just one crazy person, but numbers of people were writing, uh, not just thinking, but writing that Langland's Piers Plowman, which is an alliterative verse by our lights, um, is in blank verse. And I just thought this was very curious and I wanted to know how it could be um, historically and politically uh, and conceptually that uh, this, um, that, that this, this transposition of forms could happen. Like what did people in the 16th and 17th centuries mean by labeling Pierce Plowman as blank verse? Um, and the answer to that question ends up changing uh, our understanding of the reception of alliterative verse as well as the beginnings of blank verse. Um, so like in uh, 1668, uh, in, this, in the second printing of um, Paradise Lost when Milton claims to have been the first person to write in blank verse, which we think is a disingenuous claim. One of the forms of poetry that he's like eliding is, is actually alliterative verse, um, which had been read as blank verse for 200 years by the time he um, made that statement. Um, so it changes our understanding of his, uh, I don't know, contempt or condescension towards earlier efforts um, to, to plug Langland in, into, uh, into, into Paradise Lost as like a suppressed um, pretext or, or subtext. Yeah, great. Thank you. And I guess as a phrase, blank verse could be used to describe alliterative uh, unrhymed verse it's a sort of a, it's a it's a very odd combination of words in many ways blank verse and um but because it's become so definitively uh iambic and pentameter i'm convinced that's surely a word uh, <laughs> uh it, it feels yeah that's that's where the comparison doesn't work and i guess there's an irony there isn't there because doesn't jeffrey chaucer's verse in the 16th century become increasingly difficult to scan as word pronunciations change and there's quite a lot of head scratching in the late 16th century about whether Chaucer is in Iambic pentameter or not. Yes, uh, <laughs> I, very ironic because it, so the, the poetic tradition Chaucer inaugurates um, goes on to uh, you know if you I, I, in this book I use um, Pierre Bourdieu's theory of the literary field as a as a sort of game as a stage for a game uh, with winners and losers and position taking and. Um, as a, as a position to take the, the pentameter that Chaucer begins uh, uh, dominates the field starting in the late 15th century and, and then going on until the early 20th century with the advent of free verse. Um, however, yeah, the actual reading of Chaucer has, uh, there's a story to tell about the, 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 the forgetting of Chaucer's meter and then the recovery of it, which ends up being a scholarly recovery. Mm -hmm. um, so even as his, he, he put into the world a form of poetry that lived uh, for, you know, thrived for 500 years, but his own poetry um, became uh, obscure mm. in 150 years. And meanwhile, an exact contemporary of his writing in a different part of England and not writing in pentameter is being read uh, in, in, that, in that tradition, in the tradition that Chaucer is, is starting and Langland is not, is not part of which is quite a nice summation of just how bewildering the history of <laughs> metrification gets. Um, and I guess one of the things your book is really, uh, really clear on and exciting is essentially the, um, the colonization of uh, other kinds of English and British and European verse traditions by a Southern and particularly London centered and particularly court centered mm -hmm. culture, although that takes mm -hmm. centuries. 
It does. And um, I mean, one inspiration for writing this book was, was when I was offered the opportunity to teach our uh, pre-1700 English literature survey and teaching all of these canonical works right in a row without a, an obvious break other than the midterm exam um, made me look differently at the, the whole field. And I just really started to notice because I happened to organize that class by um, uh, social placement. So I would have like a unit on um, visionaries and I would have a unit on uh, the court at Westminster and, and so on and so forth. And it really made me realize um, the extent to which kind of socially uh, and geographically diverse um, cultures really of, of English writing that existed at the beginning of my period, 1350, um, were, were kind of forcibly funneled into um, London and Westminster and, uh, and Chaucer's metrical tradition by the end of the uh, 15th century even. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's what we remember. Like that ends up being the canonical English literature, Chaucer and uh, later court writers who are using pentameter. Um, if you listed them, they are also just like the canonical writers um, of the 15th, 16th and 17th centuries. Um, and, and so I think there is something that has been like, I wanted to, I wanted to get, get around the back of that process and, 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 I conclude that that process, among other elements to it, was a process of metrical winnowing. So there were multiple metrical options in the 14th century that get consolidated to just one. Um, and it, it's not that meter explains the social placement. It's obviously the opposite, that social change is reconfiguring the metrical landscape. But um, it's, it's like a, a, a little noted um, part of this story that uh, the emergence of pentameter is not like an, it's not just like Chaucer's meter wowed everyone and won because it was a better meter. It's, it's because it had this social heft behind it. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Um, which brings me on to the most daring chapter. Uh, I'm currently trying to write a history of um, plays in the, in the English playhouses before 1584, which is when the first play gets printed and therefore survives. Um, so a history in the absence of evidence. Uh, and you write this brilliant chapter on... Um, uh, on uh, pentameter versions of the prophecy uh, genre, uh, of which there are seven, I think, if I rem remember rightly. Um, uh, and really that chapter is about how uh, the genre is resisting the form and vice versa. They're not speaking to each other. They're not, um, they have no use for each other. Do you mind telling us a bit about that? Sure, yeah. I, um, the, the, the new book that I'm working on now is all about um, what I call uh, apophatic effects in literature, when literature gives you a, a sense or sensation of that which you cannot perceive um, <laughs> by literary design. So I guess I'm sort of doing that in this chapter. It's a chapter about an absence, um, the relative absence of political prophecies rendered into the form of pentameter. Um, and it's just something I noticed because in, in each part of the book, I'm trying to sort of process the subject matter through these three metrical dimensions. Chaucer, uh, in relation to pentameter and tetrameter, alliterative verse is less directly relevant to him. Uh, Langland in alliterative verse and pentameter through this blank verse weird connection, um, tetrameter is less relevant to him. And then political prophecy turns out tetrameter and alliterative meter are the two that, that work well, uh, whereas pentameter falls out of the picture. So in fact, in each part of the book, there's really two of the three metrical traditions I prioritize. And it, it's not just 
to make it all symmetrical, it's actually because the third in each case is, is less relevant. And uh, I noticed that there were so few prophecies in pentameter and I wanted to ask why. And mm -hmm. I ended up answering in a way that is congruent with what I said earlier about, uh, about social change, which is that um, as Chaucer's meter, as a London meter, um, and really for the first 75 years of its existence as a local meter, this is a, this is a big conclusion I have that I think is uh, the, the story is not told correctly about Chaucer's meter for, for almost 75 years, I think almost no one writing poetry in English um, uh, wanted to, or maybe even knew of uh, mm -hmm. writing pentameter. Um, it was only in the middle of the 15th century, like the middle decades of the 15th century that it really caught on. Um, and, and I think that that first 75 years uh, gets elided by the later glory of the meter. Um, it's like the way I would put it is that Chaucer doesn't belong to his own metrical tradition. He happens to inaugurate this form in this very precocious way, but um, he, he, he's not around to see its efflorescence. Um, so anyway, the prophecies in pentameter then become a very interesting subset because they're um, it's like this very unusual intersection. And so I wanted to ask why um, certain of them are, are in this form. And um, they end up being an interesting set because some of them um, are like uh, very peripherally prophetic. Like they're less stylistically close to the other prophecies. And it's almost like because they're in pentameter, they're already doing such an innovative thing that they end up um, you know, glancing off the side of this tradition. Yeah, and also that by com their attempts to combine these two things in the first place are, seem to be bespeaking, uh, again, that kind of that notion of Bourdieu's field, uh, just this discursive field that they're trying to do too many things in different directions, and right. therefore, instead of this, you get you get that. Um, right. Yeah, that was really fascinating. Um, and it's really useful to think about iambic pentameter as having those 75 years of, um, of severe locality, you know, confinement to a particular particular area and even by the 16th century um when it starts being em embraced more enthusiastically as you yourself say it, it does still exist in very specific kind of not just genres but also again locations because it's, it's places like the playhouses mm -hmm. um which are which are mediating uh mediating it most enthusiastically and you couldn't get a more um locally confined uh thing than a london playhouse Right. Yeah. I, I guess I don't put it, maybe put it like this anywhere in the book, but um, an, an upshot of my argument is that, um, is that English literature as such was, um, was apprehended locally to a greater extent than we remember now that we study this as a unitary field of knowledge. Um, and that's just worth saying it's, it isn't a unitary field of knowledge until the middle of the period my book is studying until um, George Gascoigne publishes a treatise on English poetics, it's not a thinkable category. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore to do justice to the literature written before that time, I think requires being very attentive to its, to its locales. Yeah. And London is one of those locales, even though it becomes this entrepot, it is, um, uh, it is a place, it has a, a, a regional or um, local specificity that I think also gets lost when we we tell the story of English literature only as a story of sort of like transnational exchange and cosmopolitanism. I think that's one side of it, but I, I guess I'm, I'm laying emphasis on the other side of the equation. 
Yeah, and it's really, really useful and important. And I think, um, particularly in a UK context, I'm used to thinking of the word English um, straying over the borders and being used to describe um, non-English British spaces and identities. But um, your book also really usefully points us to um, an internal English issue that when we use the word English, we're often conflating all kinds of different kinds of um, of spaces. Uh, and that's that's really useful. And as you say, Gascoigne comes along in... Um, 75, 1575, and um, proposes this category of English uh, verse. But the following year, as, as your book points out, he then writes a poem which um, displays no interest at all in any of the things that he's just said. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> he, um, and th this was uh, just dis discovering uh, Gascoigne's poem, The Steel Glass, was a big breakthrough in my project mm -hmm. because it's like as if, you know, uh, uh, an agent of mine traveled back and and asked Gascoigne to write this perfect poem for my book because it's it's the the author is is the author of this treatise of poetics so he is clearly consciously thinking about this category and um, and yet as you as you say the the poem is the steel glass it's an early blank verse poem so it fits with part two it is clearly influenced by Pierce Plowman um, and in both of those respects, it just, it bears no relation at all to the, the norms and prescriptions that Gascoigne had set out the previous year. Um, and I, I just love that uh, because it's a really good poem and also because it, um, uh, it, just, it just demonstrates something that I feel very strongly and have been trying to demonstrate in my work in different ways, which is the, the potential for disconnect between the practice and theory of, um, of versification. I think there's a tendency to, in this age of, poets writing treatises and, and, and con contemporary poets now being professors. I mean, it's very easy to like link up theory and practice and say, ah, you know, this is when, when we see Gerard Manley Hopkins doing this thing in his poems, it is the thing that he calls sprung rhythm um, and sort of uh, making the theory and the practice align. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that there's, I would emphasize the opposite that um, any theoretical prescription is always partial. Um, and that's also a Bordeauxian word. There's, um, there, no, no, no theoretical statement is um, a perfect encapsulation of the practice that it is trying to encapsulate. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's most especially true when the person doing the theorization is also doing the practice. Um, we're not perfect readers of our own uh, practice. And, and there's always going to be then space for um, some sort of gap between theory and practice. And Gascoigne illustrates that like profoundly. Absolutely. Um, and for people watching this film, uh, I have to do a shout out to one of my very favourite Elizabethan texts, which is The Adventures of Master F.J. by George Gascoigne, which starts off with an, an editor introducing himself to the reader and saying very excitedly, I've got this bunch of poems I'm going to give you. Um, and I, I know, I'm just going to say a few words before and after to explain them to you. And he does manage to give some of the poems, but um, in the course of explaining them, he ends up giving this very long prose fictional narrative uh, about a scandalous pair of lovers. Um, and more or less completely forgets the verse and ends up misdescribing it and having all kinds of strange relationships with it. So it feels like there's something happening as well across Gascoigne's work where theory, theory and practice seem to be actively undermining each other and sometimes in ways <laughs> which feel very deliberate. Um, That's um, good, yeah. Eric, you, you start your book and I'm gonna kind of head towards the end of our film um, by uh, very bravely uh, decrying everything that we've all been doing for 200 years, and quite rightly as well, I should say. Um, do you want to talk us through that? <laughs> sure. Um, 
Uh, right. I mean, the, the, the biggest goal of this book is to um, rethink, to re-narrate uh, literary periodization, uh, specifically between medieval and modern or medieval and early modern. Um, in English studies, this, this since the eight, 18th or 19th century has always been placed, this division has always been placed right around 1500 or maybe 1530s um, with the Reformation. Uh, and so there's a, like a very long historiographical tradition, a, a tradition of scholarly writing behind this division. Um, it's a division that has professional implications. I, I entered graduate school as a medievalist. Um, and so I am like, you know, poaching on someone else's turf by writing this book. Um, uh, but I, I guess it, and my first book also was about periodization between Old English and Middle English. And I guess this, this topic interests me because everybody uh, concedes that periodization is, is just a convenience and there's no ultimate truth to these categories. Um, history is not experienced in periods. You don't wake up and get an announcement that the, the modernity has begun or something. Um, everyone like understands that uh, and concedes it and stipulates it. And yet we're all studying literature in, in highly siloed um, subfields because that's just the way that professionally that the field has developed. And I think um, like some of us make more room than others for an acknowledgement of that artifice and a, a willingness to look beyond the boundaries of like the box that we were given. Mm -hmm. um, and I, um, so I, I, my undergrad I did at uh, Wesleyan University and I feel like the, the, the thing I got from a liberal arts education is just the, the, the conviction that the, the categories through which we know the world are, are always to some extent provisional. Um, and I feel like that's very true for, for period categories. And so um, it's not that, you know, every book written with medieval or early modern in the title is worthless or that getting rid of that word would solve everything either. Um, I think it's a very hard problem to solve because it's ultimately a problem about, about labor and the division of labor um, more than it is a, a problem of, uh, or as, as well as being a problem of ideas. Mm -hmm. um, so I can't, I can't solve that. Um, I can't change the fields through which we study these, uh, these works, you know, with a snap of a finger or with this book. Um, however, what I thought I would do is, uh, like I said, re-narrate, tell a different story, um, tell a different narrative with different first principles and different turning points. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I guess the, the, the takeaway is that instead of telling one single story where English literature veers towards modernity, swerves towards modernity in 1500. Um, instead, it's actually at least three stories, one for each of the metrical traditions. And each tradition has its different narrative and it's different, you know, it's like as if it's a character in a novel, it has its different highs and lows, it's different dealings with the others. Um, and and I, to me, as someone who thinks a lot about poetic form, I don't see how you could simplify it beyond that. In other words, the, the three stories don't perfectly align. And I, I wanted to let the edges be jagged um, in order to just supply a different model of telling literary history that isn't a, a totalized period model where you get to the end of something called the Middle Ages and begin something called modernity. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you. And as you say, categories through which we know the world are provisional, um, but they're also, as your book keeps reminding us, deeply ideological, political, and constitutive of how we think about our own moment in terms of modernity. And um, I really enjoyed the way the book insists on the modernity of the moment in which each of these writers, each of these poems are in composition uh, or, or in a process of reception with their earliest and later 
readers and listeners. I think that's really exciting. Um, Eric, if it's all right, I'm going to summarise where I think we've got to, um, partly for the benefit of the audience and partly so you can correct me on anything that I've got wrong. Uh, and then I, um, I'll wrap the, the film up with our final question. Um, but uh, congratulations on the book, first of all. It is quite remarkable how you can move between um, the particulars and the specifics of metrical analysis up to the political implications of those choices that are being made by, by poet, by poem, uh, and by the person consuming or using the poem. Um, and then getting us to think about the, the wider scholarly and historical and historiographical implications of all of that work um, is really remarkable. So thank you and congratulations on the book. Thanks. Um, uh, I love the idea that the, uh, the date range of your book, 1350 to 1650, is a, a date ra range of convenience, you said at the outset of the film, because one of the things I like about it but best, best is it's going to radically inconvenience many other date ranges in a useful <laughs> and productive manner. Um, I really like the idea of 300 years times three metrical traditions giving us 900 years, and that will stay with me. And you just ended with this idea that your metrical traditions are characters. And when I go back to the book, I shall bear that in mind as I think about it. And I shall start writing that movie. Um, <laughs> Uh, thank you very much for kindly uh, talking us through the three uh, metrical traditions themselves, which you did great uh, precision. So alliterative, uh, tetrameter and petrameter. Um, and I love the idea that the book is trying to get around the retrospective reading of form. Um, getting around that retrospectiveness uh, is, is really important and exciting in this book. Um, I think I shall start summarising where we've got to now, because um, that is already a lot. And the, the way we end our films is by asking contributors what the word literature means to them, where it sits in their personal or their professional vocabulary. And this feels especially uh, political now. We just have a conversation about how we think about literature now in, in our profession as academics. Um, but you're welcome to answer this in any way you like. Literature. Sure. <laughs> um, it's obviously something that I think about a lot, the category of the literary, the extent to which um, literature has a, has a nature or essence. It's, it's, uh, become a consensus view that it doesn't have a, a, an essence, which I think is, um, I understand the reasons for it, but it, it seems professionally um, not a good move to, to stipulate <laughs> that our object of study doesn't actually exist as such and is only a mixture of other objects of study studied by our colleagues in other departments. Yeah. Um, uh, here's how I'll answer. I'll answer with a, with a, with a pre-modern, meaning medieval and early modern um, answer, which is that literature is about recognition um, it's about recognizing in a text uh, something that you know from the world or from other texts um, or just from the experience of, of life. Uh, and um, the, the works of literature that I'm particularly interested in are works that, um, that play with that sense of recognition. And um, they can do so even in advance of, of anyone ever theorizing it. So uh, my, my favorite poem is Pierce Plowman. I, I teach it and read it. Often I edit a journal dedicated to it. And um, something that is so eerie about this uh, late 14th century poem is, is how, um, how much it has our number as, as close readers of, of texts. Because instead of just being a text that we can close read, Pierce Plowman is about close reading. And it has all these scenes of reading. Uh, for example, a climactic scene in which God in the, in the person of truth sends a pardon to all of humankind. Uh, which is read by the title character, Pierce Plowman, and a priest. And then uh, Will, the dreamer, who is the subject of the poem, uh, peers over the shoulder of the priest to look at the text of the pardon. 
um, which text ends up being radically different from anything that the previous discussion had led us to think it was. Um, so it's a, a representation of uh, a failure of reading. Mm. Um, and the priest actually says, this isn't a pardon at all. Um, and then very enigmatically, Pierce Plowman tears up the pardon. Um, it's a beautiful scene of like thwarted reading or uh, reading through a glass darkly, mm. uh, enigmatic reading. And um, so Langland, I think, shows an awareness of reading as recognition and toys with our desire for the fulfillment of recognition. Um, and, and to me, that is, that is the most literary thing of all, to defer that which you think literature to be, uh, to negate it. Um, uh, and this is, I'm, I'm writing about this now, so that's why I'm answering in this, in this fashion. But I, I feel like um, uh, someone has written about Pierce Plowman that it is like reading a commentary on an unknown text. Uh, that's Morton W. Bloomfield. And I, and I just think uh, any text that can give you that sensation that there is an ulterior text somewhere else that we cannot have access to, but which the text refers to, hmm. um, th that's like a, just a, such a sublime literary effect. Great. Wow. Thank you. That's really wonderful. Um, and I agree with you about the, uh, uh, the professional inadvisability of declaring that it should doesn't exist and is not a thing. Um, and um, the A Bit Lit series, which you and I are speaking on now, started off in the first week of lockdown in the UK last year. And we now have about over 150 of, uh, of our colleagues and writers and various other people answering this question of what literature is. So we, we feel like we're, we're building up a steady archive, which hopefully will protect <laughs> us from this idea that literature is not a thing. <laughs> well, well, thank you. Thank you. And thank you for doing this work and providing this forum. It's wonderful. Um, well, likewise, thank you for the book and um, uh, for talking us through it today. It's been really fascinating. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.